that is such a beautiful thing that is very human, this desire to nourish and be nourished in that process of cooking. So it changes from labor to something that's more joyful. Hello there. If you find yourself looking for a slower way of life, of travels, of connecting to the people and the places around you, you're in good company. Join me, Molly Reese, for season three of our series, where we soak in the senses of the summer and linger a little longer as we dive into refreshing conversations with creators and curators from around the world who know a thing or two about good hospitality, good gastronomy, good times, and good vibes. This is Stay in Good Company. Today, we're in great company with McKenna Held, owner of La Pichune, a country home in the French Riviera, which just so happens to be the house that Julia Child built, where McKenna welcomes historical foodies and aspiring home chefs alike to visit as guests in her home and students of her courageous cooking school. McKenna, bienvenue to the show. Happy to have you in our company. Thank you so much, Molly. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, before we get to know your intimate yet luxury cottage with its iconic pegboard kitchen, we want to get to know you. Tell us about yourself, your upbringing and early career prior to taking the leap to move to the countryside of France. Absolutely. I grew up in California and I was raised by what you would call Francophiles, but not foodies. And my father was an executive at Taco Bell of all things. So to say foodie would be kind of silly, very into Taco Bell still. So I, I am, I contain multitudes. Um, <laughs> and I moved to Colorado in kind of pre-high schools, middle school, early, I guess it was sixth grade. Yeah. And Fell in love with all sorts of different types of food by living in Colorado and living in Boulder, which had a lot of different types of food emerging. It wasn't quite where it is now in terms of the foodie scene, but there was a lot of difference of food that I hadn't really experienced prior, which is strange because I you know, grew up in California outside of LA. But to me, food was kind of Mexican, Italian, French. That was kind of it. And Boulder had a much... Diff- it was a lot less restaurants, so there was a lot less choice. But in that choice, there was kind of one of everything. So there was a decreased choice and an increased choice. So I spent a lot of time kind of discovering food when I moved to Colorado and then decided to not get involved in food at all. I really didn't think I wanted to be involved in food. I definitely didn't want to be involved in hospitality originally, which is hysterical now since I'm so deeply entrenched in that. And I really just thought I'd end up being a marketer like my dad. I I was good at it. I had a knack for it. And I really had a way of like weaving stories and narratives. So I kind of went into that, decided I hated that. That wasn't my thing either. And kind of bounced around for a while until I realized that I could do a lot of business consulting because I had so much experience in business by that point in my life. And pre-pandemic, burnt out on that. Zoom fatigue, holy cow, before everyone else, I was so Zoom fatigued. I was spending, you know, 30 plus hours a week on Zoom with clients and the money was good, but the lifestyle was not. So I let all the clients go except for two of them and became a ski instructor just to get out and be outside and not have a screen in front of my face all the time. And that was when the peach came on the market and I took the leap and bought it sight unseen. So that was a very roundabout way to becoming a hospitalian. Oh my goodness. Well, I definitely want to hear more about how you stumbled across that and what really drew you to it. But before we do that, I do want to give a little bit of background as well and a brief introduction for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with Julia Child. And so Julia Child was one of the first female icons known for bringing French cuisine to the American families through her cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and her television cooking show, The French Chef. Now, before we get into her relationship with La Peach, can you share what she means to you personally and what you two have in common in particular? I was never really a Juliophile, which is strange since I bought her house. And it wasn't that (laughs) I wasn't interested in her cooking show. It's that cooking shows in general at the time didn't really interest me. And I think that's kind of still the case, honestly, but we can talk about that another time. But I was really interested in the fact that a very, very tall woman who was highly awkward could be a television star. So growing up, I found a lot of interest in Julia. I'm a very tall human. I'm six foot one. She was apparently as tall as six three. 
people argue over how tall she was all the time because she would constantly change how tall she was when she would when people would ask her. And I think that was because she was so tall. I, I do that all the time too. When people are like, oh my God, you're so tall. It's like, yeah, I didn't know that. I haven't lived my entire life being taller than 95% of the entire world's population. Like, whoa, what a surprise. And I think that when you get asked that question so much, you just kind of start darting around it, especially if you're as tall as 6'3", especially in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. That was an immense mountain of a human at that point in time. Still is, right? So that's one thing we have in common. But for me, watching her growing up was a revelation as a tall, awkward human, myself, Muppety, is always how I refer to myself. I really loved watching her for that reason, because I could see this tall, Muppety, slightly awkward, slightly strange human on television. And I didn't see a lot of representation of that. I saw a lot of representation of the kind of norm, right? So Julie was this kind of deterrence from the norms. I was always really interested in that piece of her and the fact that it was possible to be a tall, awkward human and be on television. And then we also both went to Smith College. And she's actually one of the reasons why I even wanted to go to Smith, because I figured if a tall, awkward person could thrive there, I could be the next thriving, tall, awkward person (laughs) who went to Smith. Well, and I'm sure you had no idea, you know, having gone there that you would then one day own her old home. No, was not on my list. (laughs) I I can't imagine that was part of your five, 10 year plan. No. (laughs) Looking at her, her house and we'll hear all about its modern day charms, but it has hosted hundreds of famous food influencers over the years. La Pichon was a property that catalyzed a lot of the food movement in the 70s in Provence. And so what is the historical significance of the property itself? The property is super historical. It has hosted so many dinner parties. It's definitely the type of place where you just wish the walls could talk to you. And Luke Barr actually wrote a book about the house and the experience of this 1969 into 1970 and the sort of dinner parties that were had there by cobbling together letters and then kind of creating a fictionalized story of the experience of MFK Fisher and James Beard and Richard Olney, who was also a French cookbook writer, and Simone Beck, who was Julia Child's collaborator in Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And so they created this kind of historic, Luke Barr created this historical narrative around it. And I always find it so interesting to read these historical accounts because there's just this desire to have been there, I think. It was such a crucial time in American food culture, and it was a really multifaceted time in American food culture. And it was changing very rapidly. And these people were having important conversations that were shaping where America is now, where the United States is now. And that's such a crucial piece of the property's history. And it was built on Simone Beck's land, which is such a rarity for Americans to have had a home in the 1960s in France because it was still illegal to own property. It was still post-World War II. Not illegal, I guess you'd say not permitted. It's not like there was it was against the law. It just wasn't possible. So there were Americans who had properties from previous World War II, but they weren't currently selling properties. So the only way you could do it was this sweetheart deal where someone could give you land and you could build on it, right? And that's exactly what Simone Beck did for Julia. So there's all sorts of things about like changing food culture that were really happening at Le Peach. You had James Beard and you had Michael James and Billy Cross, who Michael James and Billy Cross ran the great chefs of France cooking school at the Robert Mondavi Winery. And you had all of these different things kind of happening on this property, which the greater property is called Bramafam. And that's the land that Le Peach is built on. And I think that's such an interesting thing to think about, like what was actually happening behind closed doors and what was, what were the actual conversations being had and how was culture shaped during this crucial pivotal time in a post-war culture, in a new food emergent color culture as slow food was emerging and coming out of the woodwork. Michael James wrote the first main book on slow food. It was literally called Slow Food. And he's no longer with us. He died of AIDS, but he was such a huge part of that time there too. And there's so much 
occurring in that period of time. You had post-World War II, the emergence of foodie and a huge health epidemic that wiped out so many gay men who were crucial to this hospitality and food industry. And they've kind of been written out of the history, not so much by anyone's fault. They're just not here. And there's not anybody to kind of vouch for them and stand up for them. So all of that was happening kind of behind the scenes at La Peach. Obviously, James Beard was known to not be of the heterosexual variety also, and was a crucial part of this food movement. And there's just a lot happening at La Peach during that time when the house was being constructed into the 70s and 80s because that was the emergence of food in the United States. Before that, you're talking about, you know, Betty Crocker cookbooks where it's like bananas and salmon, uh, you know, just things that really, you know, I say that, but maybe it's delicious. I don't know. It doesn't sound delicious to me. But that was a huge period of time for sure. It was this kind of emergent food narrative occurring. There's no TV dinners or frozen food or any canned goods in that kitchen. And I'm sure just the space too, which we'll get into, just lent itself to those conversations, to that communal dining and cooking and celebratory experience where you could share that creativity and collaborate on these new and modern at the time ideas in the food world and bringing them back to America. I'm sure the wine helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It always does. Now, for you in particular, your story with Love Pichon started with a listing on the New York Times and a naive text that read, wouldn't it be cool to own Julia Child's house? Now, can you share that story and the adventures along the way in owning it? On November 13th, 2015, the New York Times put Julia Child's former summer home on the front page of the real estate section and on the front page of the newspaper. It wasn't the head headline. It was the secondary. If you know anything about newspapers, there's the headline with the big picture. And then down to the right, here's where your eyes go next. And it was right there. And still noticeable, (laughs) still noticeable. And it was online, too. And I woke up, I lived in Colorado at the time, I was training to be a ski instructor. And I woke up and signed into Facebook, which was my go to every single morning at the time. I don't think I do that anymore. But I used to. And I opened up my computer and it was at the top of my newsfeed. The uh, it had been posted in the alumni forum on Facebook for Smith College. And I was in such shock that I clicked the link to the article and just kind of stared at this window with this red ivy. I had never seen ivy that turned red, right? I've only seen like evergreen ivy. I had never seen color changing ivy. It's an heirloom variety. I've learned all about it now because it's now on my house. (laughs) And I was just so taken aback by the little heart-shaped shutters. And I fell madly in love with that specific window and that specific view. And it was actually an email, not a text. I sent an email to 12 people BCC'd that said, wouldn't it be cool to own Julia Child's house? Question mark with literally just the link to the article. Nothing else. I, I, I was totally an off the cuff, random thing. I sent it to every food and wine investor that I could think of and a few family members and a few friends and just, just that, like sent it out into the ether. And I got a few responses back. Not everybody responded. Some people thought I was insane. Some people thought it was really cool, but no thanks. And I actually had no bites at first. And I still went hunting for the listing and the listing was not on the site. So when you clicked from the article, you ended up on like the Sotheby's real estate main page, but not actually the listing agents page, right? You could send a feedback form there. We all know what happens to those uh, fill in the blank forms. They disappear into the ether. So I didn't want to do that. And I tried to track down the listing, but this house had actually already sold, which is interesting. So I was not the first offer and the offer had been accepted actually, but I and I figured that out by going to the Sotheby's Cote d'Azur site, looking up the property, couldn't find it, called the real estate agent and they said it already sold. But if you know anything about November 13th, 2015, that was the day of the Bataclan attacks in Paris. And the person who had bought it was an American whose daughter at the time lived in Paris. And after the attacks, she decided to move back to the U.S. because she didn't feel safe in Paris, to which I respond, oh, so there's no gun violence in America. That's rich, right? And no terrorism, never, never, ever. But I can understand why that might happen. It's not necessarily logical, but the desire to move back home when something like that happens in a foreign country. And the listing was back live again. So I went back to those people who responded and said, hey, the listing's live, let's talk. And suffice to say, was able to find a couple people to say yes. And we bought it a few weeks later, put in an offer and 
it's still all kind of a blur how it happened and how we were able to pull it off, but we were able to find a mortgage. We were able to find a lawyer to help set up a company. We were able to do all of these things thanks to our amazing real estate agent, actually. He's the owner of the Sotheby's Coat d'Azur and he's used to working with foreigners. So it just all kind of worked out. And it's still to this day quite the surprise, frankly, because every once in a while I, I'm like cooking going, am I really, is this really what I do for a living? Is this really my life? And lo, yes, it is. I think we're all wondering that. How do we how do we do that? <laughs> Tell us, show us the way. <laughs> now, when you were handed the keys back in 2015, what were the first few years like owning a at the time rundown property and running a new business in France? Yeah, I'll tell you. So I got the keys in April of 2016. I actually was not the first to get end up at the house. Some family and friends who helped me get the house ready were there before me. So they actually got to be in the house before I was there. And I will tell you that I don't think, since I, I bought it sight unseen, I had one of the investors go look at the property in lieu of me because I was training for ski instructing and couldn't get out of it if I wanted to keep my job. And I will tell you, I don't think that like any of us realized what shape it was in because it was filled with so much stuff that it was hard to really tell the etat in French. It's the state, right? The state it was in. And it definitely what took eight, so we had six people at a time staying at La Peach. That's what kind of fits in the main house. And we were all working 40 to 50 hours a week, kind of sun up to sundown of cleaning. And it took us four weeks of doing that. So we're talking a lot of human hours to get the house to be rentable. I wouldn't even say it was really finished. The gardens had barely been touched uh, at that point, but it was it was rentable. And it was rentable at a, we were renting it for a very insignificant amount of money in hindsight now. So we had it ready and we rented it for a year and then we opened the cooking school. So it was definitely a challenge. I'll say that running a business as a foreigner in France is a challenge. I will say that dealing with contractors when, sure, I spoke French, thank God, before I moved here, moved sight unseen to the south of France. I'd never even been to the south of France when I moved here. So I at least had French, but I had not a lick of any ideas of anything else that I was walking into. That's for sure. Yeah. There's, there's no Home Depot down the street for you to go and pick up your supplies. There's <laughs> no, they, I mean, they have, they have big hardware stores, but they're not the same. And they're very hard to navigate, especially when you don't speak French as your first language, because I, I spoke really good conversational French, right? But mousetrap, how do you say mousetrap in French? I still actually don't know, but I do know that I went and made like, that was how I got someone to give me a mousetrap. How do you say four, like quarter inch screw? Still don't know, <laughs> frankly. Also, it's in centimeters. Hey, there's another one. It was a culture. It wasn't so much culture shock. It was culture change. I wasn't shocked because I knew it would be different. Like that, I wasn't in any sort of shock about it. But I was constantly, and I remain constantly trying to figure out those sorts of details that just aren't natural in French textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a great way of putting it. And then, of course, you soon brought your husband, Chris, into the picture. How did you two meet and how did you convince him to join you in this journey? Oh, that's such a funny story. So Chris and I were not together when I bought La Peach. I was actually in another relationship. I was married. No funny business, uh, but I was already married. I was previously married. He actually proposed, Chris proposed to his first wife at my wedding. Wow. So, and his... <laughs> His now ex-wife planned me and my first wife's bachelorette party. So we were all very good friends. And I had already bought La Peach. And buying La Peach kind of was a, a wake-up call. It was a need. You had to grow up pretty fast because of all the work involved. And it, made, it became very clear that my relationship was not functional. And I didn't, didn't want to stay in it. So I separated. And because I was... A, functionally unhomed, right? I'm not homeless. I had, could have gone back and lived with my parents. I had support systems. The idea of doing that in the middle of a divorce felt really uncomfortable and not very much fun. So I decided to move in with him because he was now single and uh, he was one of my best friends and it seemed to make sense. And it gave me a lot of time to spend among friends as I was in the middle of a divorce. And suffice to say, the rest is history. The choice was either... I sell the peach and move back to Macon, Georgia, where he was a librarian, 
or he could move to France. Those were the two choices. And so obviously we decided to move back to Macon, Georgia. Just kidding, right? Like we didn't, we didn't <laughs> decide to do that. He decided to leave his job after about, God, about a year of us dating. He decided to leave his job and kind of join in on the project, which has been super useful because it's a historical property. So having a historian and librarian, very good skills, that's for sure, to have on the team. Absolutely. And I'm sure he finds it so interesting to be able to research and find something new every day. I mean, there's just endless stories, like you said, if, if the walls could talk. <laughs> so I'm sure he brings a lot of that out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's great because guess who doesn't care about the nostalgia and the history, really? Me. Like, which I know sounds weird. Like, I bought a historical property, but I'm not really one who looks at history as this thing that we should pay attention to other than not to make the same mistakes, right? That's how I use history as a lens. I, I am not the type of person who like steeps in nostalgia. It's just not my thing. But you do need someone to have that drive and interest when you own a property like this. I am not that person. I'm the business person. I'm forward thinking. I like moving. And he likes to like steep in the history and look at plans of the house and read documents. And I'm like, next, let's go. But you need you need someone to balance that out at a property like this, that's for sure. <laughs> it's a perfect blend. And then, of course, you two welcomed in Magnolia to your little family. And so what is it like raising a daughter while running a vacation stay and cooking school? What do you hope she learns from this experience? Oh, that's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Like what I hope my daughter learns. I think that the really interesting thing about being in hospitality in the way we are, which is very unique, it's different than any other type of hospitality experience on the face of the earth. We're very singular in how we run our business. I've never fallen upon anything like it. And I think that what that really lends for her is that she's constantly surrounded by new adults and new perspectives. And also she is spoiled rotten because of that, right? People bring her presents. People want to meet her. She just thinks that she's famous which I guess, you know, in some ways people recognize her faster usually than me when we're out in public from the TV show. It's like, oh my God, is she on that? Oh, you're the mom. Yeah, you're McKenna. They're like, I, I remembered your daughter. And I'm like, well, she does have very curly hair and bright blue eyes. So pretty hard to miss. But I think that constant change of people around and that engagement with a lot of different types of people has been really good for her. I think that's matured her without it being... You know, a lot of kids get mature because of trauma. Like she's matured because of visibility of to so many different types of people. And also it gives her this very beautiful perspective that people come and go and that staying in one place isn't an abject necessity. And I think a lot of American children don't grow like grow up believing that they shouldn't leave and they should stay in their hometowns and they should stay near their families. And I think that she has this kind of sense of freedom of what's possible because she's meeting so many people and she understands that they come and go. People come back and see her again. So she knows that people do often come back. And I think that it's just such a difference than say how a lot of like my friends growing up were raised or how even I was raised. I was not raised to be that kind of flexible in my thinking. I was raised to be more flexible than plenty of Americans. But yeah, I, I, that is a very good question. Thank you for asking that and for giving me the opportunity to reflect on it. <laughs> Well, it's so great also for Magnolia to be able to really travel the world while staying home in that sense of meeting different people and learning about different cultures and hearing different stories. You're able to give her this whole world view that many don't have access to at that age. And I, I wish, frankly, that I did. Absolutely. So beyond just your little family of three there, you also have the rest of your small but mighty menagerie the play such an important role in the day-to-day -day at La Peach. So can you share more about your team? Absolutely. So we are actually quite a large team now. We're a team of over 20 people total. Oh my goodness. Uh, the in I know. It's it's insane. It is wild. It is I, I still have to like take a deep breath when I say that out loud. Our in-person team is now six individuals. So we have a team of six. So we're basically run a one-to-one -one ratio, which again is wild, but that's what it takes to keep the property as clean and as beautiful as it is. And it's, you know, it's like we run a tiny hotel and it just takes that much staff. And people I think are always shocked by how much staffing we have. Uh, but the reality is, is like you, it's work. It's real work to keep the keep keep her humming along. So 
Chris and I are kind of the main folks. Chris does all the history talks and does a lot of the small talk with clients as that's not my forte. I will admit it's not my forte. It's my downside as a hospitalian is small talk. I'd rather talk about your deepest, darkest secrets than hear about your grandchildren. It's just not my thing. I'd love to hear about everything that has gone great in your life and everything that's gone terrible in your life. And Chris can literally talk about anything. He's the type of person who can talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere, as long as he speaks the language. And Ross and Kendall, who are another couple, they actually, they are our business partners, our friends, and they also are our roommates. They live above us in our personal home. And then we have our cleaning staff and our hospitality kind of front end staff, which is making sure that everybody has what they need when they want it, when they need it, when they ask for it as quickly as possible. And that is Eric and Naima. And that is our team of six on the ground. And then we have a chief operating officer. We have a customer, full-time customer service person. We have admin. We have online cooking instructors. We have marketing people and production assistants. And it's just massive. And actually, we're seven on site now because now our one of our production assistants from the TV show, Shane, actually works with us in person too and does a lot of the driving around of guests to and fro. So um, yeah, we are quite the operation these days. <laughs> Nice little community you've built there. I love that. And so what all did you envision? Did your team envision for La Pichun and all that it could be for guests to experience? Would you say that that still stands true today? I think so. I think that we're constantly surprised at what is possible and what the team is capable of. I, I think we're all constantly surprising ourselves. We're currently in the middle of our summer season, and this is the first summer season where all of our rentals are catered, meaning we're cooking multi-course meals, Kendall and myself are cooking multi-course meals for guests multiple times a week. So it's like having a personal Michelin-style starred restaurant. We're not a starred restaurant, right? I don't want to get that twisted, nor are we trying to be. But that kind of style of well-plated, high-end tasting menus, high-touch service for six people. And it requires almost the same amount of staff as it would if you had 15, right? Like it's 15 people or 20 people. And we're so our team of four is constantly on site for that. And I think that we're we're always kind of surprising ourselves of what is possible and what is exciting and what brings us joy and what really expands a definition of hospitality. I, I talk to my friends who are hospitalians all the time, whether they own hotels or small bed and breakfasts or uh, restaurants. And they're always saying how lucky we are to have the type of business we do because it's it's relatively high ticket pricing. Right? We're definitely expensive and we know that. But I always joke that like, well, you get to say goodnight to your guests at the end of the night, like actually say goodnight to them. And they come for one meal. And even if they come back tomorrow, you only have to have them for two hours, right? We literally are with the same group of six or seven people for an entire week. And since it's so high touch, that can either be a really great thing or a really difficult thing. And usually it's great. We have very few difficult clients. And even the difficult ones have their benefits, right? But it's a very intimate, high-touch experience, and it's very, very close quarters. La Peach is tiny. It's sweet. It's just like a little jewel box property. It's like 1,300 square feet. It is not big. And so you're taking six strangers and jamming them into bedrooms together. They've paid a large price to attend. And then they're also in this tiny kitchen with me and Kendall and Chris and Ross. And it's it's really intimate. And that's the beautiful thing about it. And it's, whew, it's a thing. We're always reevaluating if this is how we want to continue running, right? Right now, the answer is yes. Hello, worldly travelers and loyal listeners. Do you know of places and people we can stay in good company with? Are you yourself a host looking to share your story and welcome in good company? We're always looking for new places to travel, new people to meet. Share who you know and where they are by sending us a note at stayinggoodcompany.com or by mentioning us on our social media channels at stayinggoodcompany. We'll be sure to give you a shout out when we're there. Well, it's time for us all to take a trip to La Pichun as it stands today. So can you paint us a picture of La Peach, as you lovingly call it? When we first turn into the drive and we see the charming cottage, the well-tended gardens, what can guests expect to experience? I think that when you come to La Peach, you immediately have this sense of being well cared for. 
it's this thing that people constantly are telling us that after a few days with us, like, wow, I have never been in a position where I feel so tended to and so taken care of. And that's intentional. Like we're really about creating a space that is safe to kind of lean into. So we don't let you do the dishes. We don't let you lift a finger. Like people really want to help us clear because it's kind of like you're invited into our family. And if you're in your own family, right, you want to clear the dishes. But we we really just kind of want you to just fall into the experience. We want it to be this kind of like otherworldly service experience where everything is kind of tended to morning through night. It's very royal, right? It's very like a, like old school royal where someone's feeding you frozen grapes. I will never feed a guest a frozen grape, but if they asked really nicely, maybe. But it's that kind of like that touch. Every single detail is really attended to. We have really nice furnishings that were custom designed for us by a company out of Saint-Rémy-de-Provence called Berenger Leroy. And we have Bonsoir Sheets, which is kind of like the highest end direct-to-consumer brand in France, like really like satiny, beautiful sheets, really nice duvets and really nice pillows and Dyson hair dryers and air wraps, which we have to clean the hair out of every week, right? Because that's they get hair wrapped in them because they are, um, you know, hot brushes, and cowdily bath and body products, and really nice sunscreens, and bug sprays, and Hermes blankets in every single room. Every single bed has an Hermes blanket. There are two on the couch. And we have a flower garden behind the kitchen where we grow dahlias and cut them and make bouquets. And there's a gorgeous mosaic pool that we picked the color so that the water would look a little less blue and a little bit more like pearlescent. It's like a purpley gray mosaic with like a rainbow pearlescence, but not the whole entire pool. Spent a lot of time angsting over that decision, right? We have chickens. We have a garden that you can pick produce out of it's just this like very garden to kitchen everything taken care of experience and it's it's really I mean it is really unique and I I have to I have to kind of toot our horn that like what we have been able to accomplish as a team it's not just me like I cannot do this by myself like that one human cannot do that for six but like as a team we're really able to provide what I would argue is one of the best hospitality experiences in the world. You know, even high-end hotels don't offer this anymore, right? You you used to be able to get that level of service at the big names like the Ritz and the Four Seasons. But these days you can't go up to the concierge of the Four Seasons and say, hey, could you pick me up a pack of X or this alcohol? They'll be like, yeah, no, sorry, you go get it. It's down the street. And you ask us for that and we're like on it, white on rice. And I think that's, really a beautiful thing about having the type of staff that we have, right? Like most people can't afford to do that in their day-to-day life because it's expensive, yo. Like that's why our week is so expensive. And I, I just think that like that opportunity to be in this kind of otherworldly place with this otherworldly service is just really magical. It sounds like you've thought of so much, but then to your point, there's always something else that the guests need or want. And so you're able to adapt and to offer them those special touches, which go a long way. A lot of times it's that going the extra mile that then really makes the experience memorable for them. So now turning more to the cooking experience there on property, if we were to cook in good company as students at your courageous cooking school, what does that six day educational retreat consist of? Oh, I love it so much. It's, it's such a thing. We've, it's, we've spent so much time building it, right? And so it really is the only thing like it. Like People always say, well, who are your competitors? And I said, what competitors? And it's not that I don't have colleagues in the cooking space. There are other culinary retreats. I just don't view them as competitors. I don't view, like, I don't think there's really that much out there that is in competition. It's like, if people like this type of experience, they'll find it, they'll sign up for it. And if they like it, they'll do it again. But what's really interesting about the Courageous Cooking School is that it's really not a cooking school. (laughs) And people are always like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, it was really built by to be more of like a self-leadership school, right? The cooking is really only half the point. And people tell me all the time that 
like a year or two, people will leave and I won't hear from them for like 18 months. And then I'll get an email or a letter out of the blue thanking us for the experience and how it changed their life. And when I built it, I wanted it to be life-changing. I didn't expect it to be catalyzing, but it is. And the reason why it's catalyzing is because home cooks, even very adept home cooks, spend all of their time handing over their own taste buds to someone who's a better and bigger expert than them. They rely on recipes from people who are supposedly better than they are at developing recipes. Now, the truth of the matter is almost anyone can be a good recipe developer if they like to eat and they like to cook. It is not rocket science as someone who develops recipes for a living in addition to running a recipe-free cooking school. It's like there's this magic that unlocks when you realize you can do it too. When you can come up with your own flavor profiles, when the fact that so much of creating cool flavor combinations is about being willing to make a different choice than the norm makes. So Courageous Cooking is not really about cooking only. It's about how do you make different choices? How do you make choices that are more integrity to your quote unquote palate? And that's not to say that we don't teach cooking skills. We teach very crucial skill sets. We teach you how to braise. We teach you how to brown. We teach you infusions. We teach you infusions in every single way, like cream infusions for creme brulee and for pomme dauphinoise and for stocks. Those are all infusions, right? We teach stews, quote unquote, which really are just braises. And we teach browning and like understanding that the way that a chef cooks and the way a home cook cooks is different but not necessarily correct either way. And we kind of compare those experiences so that you can start to really approach at home cooking differently, either from the hip or looking at recipes and be able to interpolate them faster and make flavor changes without having to worry about it. And that's really what we're focused on. And so much of that comes down to like trusting yourself and also finding harmony in discord. It's like you have these five things that don't technically match. Hello, mole. Mole is a great example of things that if they were in other quantities, wouldn't taste good together. But when you put them into this beautiful symphony, I don't ever want to listen to, sorry, clarinetists, but I don't really enjoy the clarinet by itself. But when it's in a symphony, great, right? And it's kind of the same idea with spice blends and creating new flavors is like trying to find the magic of how those things can work in beautiful harmony and be in this kind of like symphony environment because by itself, wild hang isn't my favorite ingredient, but when you put it in with other things, it's this like magical, earthy, bright excitement, right? So that's really what we're focused on is like, yes, sure, we want to teach you hard skills like how to butcher chicken and how to brown meat and how to high roast a high heat roast, but we also want you to learn skills about like how do you trust yourself how do you smell? How do you play? None of that's ever taught in a cookbook, right? No one tells you you can make your own spice blends because they don't want you to know that, but you can and it's possible and you too can do it. Well, you're inviting everyone to find that source of creativity inside of them that they might not know exists. And to your point, you are allowing them to really learn and lean on their intuition and feel empowered that they can go ahead and not play by the rules or follow the recipes in the book, but they can make their own little tweaks and changes. And it could be a lot better for them and the people they're enjoying the food with. So I, I definitely get that sense that it's beyond the, the food itself. It's about the values, the lifestyle changes that you can then kind of integrate into other aspects of your life. Absolutely. And I, I think that's really the magic, right? Because there's this fear in cooking about things having to be perfect. And just because it's not your favorite dish doesn't make it a bad dish. Right. Just because it doesn't look beautifully plated with a garnishment on top doesn't mean it's delicious. Right. Exactly. Beyond the food and the individual you know, self-development and exploration, there's also that communal aspect that's so important to the cooking, the dining experience, and so how does that community that you foster linger beyond the table and the stay experience itself? There is this magic because of the experience that happens in the aftermath. And, you know, not everybody always gels and that's also okay, right? Most groups do, some groups don't. And people are always like, well, what if I don't gel? I was like, you'll still have a good time. Like, you don't, you're not with your classmates 
all that much by yourself, right? In the evenings, okay, fine. There's plenty of places to hide if you don't gel with people. But in general, people do. And I think that so much of that comes from the fact that if you're willing to spend a significant sum of money to share a small house with other people and learn how to cook without recipes, you have to be a certain type of person. And a lot of these people kind of view us as the community holders and come back and visit us time and time again. We do trips around the world, not just at La Peach, but those require coming to La Peach first. And so it's this kind of like back-end thing, a back-end hospitality offer. It's kind of like joining the cooking school. You're actually joining a travel club. We just don't advertise it that way. And a lot of people leave being like best friends and travel together after and go on trips together. We've had so many people who have shown up to the cooking school and then continue to travel together in the future. And I think that's delightful and marvelous. And yeah, it's definitely, there are definitely connections beyond the table, but I think that community element is really what makes the cooking school so much fun because people will say like, Oh, I just hate cooking alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I've realized is that I don't like cooking alone. And I always look at them and go, you do know you can invite friends over to help you cook. You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to have a dinner party where the guests don't cook. You can actually invite them and say, hey, we're going to start cooking at five. We're going to eat at 730. Like that is an opportunity. You don't have to be this the host with the most all the time. You can do that sometimes or you can invite people to cook with you. Now, that doesn't mean you have to trust them to, you know, have knife skills. But if you come to the Courageous Cooking School, you'll be able to teach them your knife skills pretty quickly. And yeah, so I think that the element of sharing space makes cooking so much less of a chore which is why so many cultures, the women, since it's usually a woman's job, right? It's just is what it is. I'm not saying it should be, but it often is. There's a reason why the women will cook together and they're not just cooking alone. Then that that is such a beautiful thing that is very human, this desire to nourish and be nourished in that process of cooking. So it changes from labor to something that's more joyful. Absolutely. And I mean, as we were talking about the history of La Pichun, that has been part of really its its essence from the beginning are those communal cooking, dining experiences, those dinner parties, that collaborative effort to all put something beautiful together and then to go away and to still have those memories and to share those experiences wherever else that may lead you. And so I love that you're honoring that to this day. Now, as we look at the beautiful seasons in the French Riviera, do you have a favorite one? Is there anything about the produce, the weather, any local celebrations taking place during that time? Not summer. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody always thinks that the Riviera is so great in the summer. Come in another season. The Riviera sucks in the summer compared to the other seasons. I'm not saying that the Riviera is not great in the summer. It's such a beautiful, vibrant place to be. It has that je ne sais quoi, right? That feeling of like, oh, I'm going to summer in the French Riviera and Saint-Tropez. Heard, yes, it's a thing. It does have cachet. I love it. But like, it is the worst of our four seasons, truly. And I mean that with every fiber of my being. And I hate, I always hate telling people this because I'm always worried that means that my my life is going to just be overrun with tourists year round instead of just the summer, but that's okay. Good for business, right? But really the be- most beautiful seasons are spring and fall. And even winter is stunning. I have spent most of my Decembers stunning myself in 78 degree weather. It just is. It, it, and the produce is still popping off because it's so nice here. It's like, sure, it might freeze sometimes in January, February. Like, maybe that's not the best time to come here, but it also can be beautiful. But the falls and the springs are really where the magic is. It's where everything cools down just a little bit. The Riviera in the summer is like sun up to sundown, which is 5.30 in the morning to 10.30 at night, by the way. It's a huge swath of time. It's like 95 degrees. It does not cool off in the evenings once July, August hits, especially August. There's no chilled out, cool evenings. And that's not to say that it's not worth coming to in the summer. It's just that if you're coming in the summer, come in another season too. See it in both ways and make the decision what is for you. But there's a reason why most Floridians don't live in Florida in the summer. There's a reason why like, they're snowbirds. They come in the winter. Same kind of concept here, right? It's like really beautiful and gorgeous year round. But man, summer's hot. So yes, my favorite season is definitely spring and fall. 
Those are the best. And winter is the unsung hero. It is stunning. And you can swim in the morning. It's often warm enough to swim in the Riviera, in the Med, even in December. So like January, you can swim. You might want a little thin wetsuit, but you don't really need it. It's cold, but it's not unsufferably cold. You can swim in the morning, be at a ski hill with an hour and 20 minutes, ski, have lunch on the slopes, eat oysters and a glass of champagne for 12 euros and be back in time for dinner and back at the sea. Like, it's just stupid. It's stunning. Oh my goodness. You've just planned my trip for the next few years coming each season (laughs) to get a different taste. I love it. Now, you're also just a short drive into Grasse, a small town famously known as the world's perfume capital. But as a local, what do you like most about your town? Are there places to eat, sites to see, things to do? Grasse is a community in transition. And that's one of the reasons why I love it. I, I wouldn't say it is the it is one of the most beautiful cities in the Riviera, and it is just not quite there yet. It's one of the kind of untapped cities left. Most cities have been tapped out. They are like Disneyfied or super touristy. And other than the perfume factories or perfume purveyors where you can make your own perfume and go to the museums, it just hasn't quite gotten there yet. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about being here is like we're opening a flower farm, which is like what Gross used to be known for. So we're going to kind of bring back this big piece of property that we just bought in Gross and bring back that heritage of flower growing. We think that is important. That's the perfect weather for it. Might as well. We're opening a restaurant. And, you know, admittedly, there's not a ton of great restaurants. There's lots of cute, quirky restaurants, but nothing like to write home about. And we're really trying to change that. That's why we want to open there. We really just see this untapped potential of this village to really be extraordinary and the grassois are awesome like the people who are actually from here are amazing and have like a deep sense of pride and history for the town and i just think that like it is literally just pure potential at the moment and it is definitely worth a visit if you come to the riviera it's like you know but you can do it in a half day and we'd like to change that we'd like it to be like more of a destination and it's slowly happening Slowly, slowly, slowly but surely, it's coming kind of back to life and revitalizing. And we have a great mayor. He's incredible, Jerome um, Viod. He's just like the greatest. And I, I really think that like Gross will be kind of the hip place to be in like three to five years. I think it's going to be where everyone goes instead of just kind of the afterthought of the Riviera. Well, and it sounds like you've already teased at how you are having a hand in you know, making all of that dream a reality. And so I'm sure I speak for both myself and our listeners wanting to know what the future holds for you and your team and your future guests. So what's next for the property of La Pichun itself? What renovation projects are in the works? Well, we just finished one. So the idea of more is uh, hard to wrap my head around, but it's happening. Uh, we actually just added a fourth bedroom to the property. So the property is actually two houses. It's what we call La Peach, right? Or La Pichun. And then what we call Pichunet, which is the, which was called the Cabin on by Paul and Julia. It's an old shepherd's cottage. And it had this turret on it that was pulling the house down the hill because the turret was built without a foundation. And it's like a 15th, it was built, the little cottage was built in the 1500s. So it's ancient. And this turret was just like yanking this barely foundationed building down. So we took that down and added a bedroom downstairs uh that's a guest room it's really my favorite place on the property now it's just such a charming space it has a really fun color scheme all of our rooms have color schemes but this is kind of like turquoise blue it's just very calming and has its own private terrace so we just did that and we just replaced all the door handles with limoges porcelain which is not anything i would put in my house but it's so cute in a cute little like jewel box cottage in the south of France. Not my style per se, but that, hey, this isn't my, I don't get to make the style choices. They make themselves, right? But we are, our next big things is renovating the bathrooms at La Peach. So they are great. They're stunning. They have old Moroccan tile, but they were done in the 90s by the previous owner. And they're, they're just, you can, they're starting to show wear, right? They're just... And I don't want to change them much, but I'd like to put in 
easier to use showers. Like it's the old French shower, hand shower, bath combo. Like not, it's not really great. And I, we just really want like, it's like the next thing. It's just, it doesn't need to be changed that much, but the tile is starting to chip. That Moroccan tile, it's real terracotta, right? With that glaze. And those glazes just don't last forever. They last a really long time. They've made it, what, almost 30 years. So that's great. But like, it's just time, sadly. And that's just, I'm not looking forward to that one. And the other big one is we're trying to make the kitchen ADA accessible. So that is a massive undertaking to make one of the bedrooms accessible and to make the kitchen accessible. And I'm not sure when we'll be able to afford that. It's such a big renovation. It requires moving a wall, like an entire exterior wall. But it's really important to us to make that happen. And it, I don't know how or when, but it is on the agenda. I would love to do it like tomorrow, right? So we're going to make sure the bathroom when we do the renovation, that one is accessible so that when we can make the next big leap that we can do that. Oh, I love that you're thinking intentionally about the changes that you're making and who they're for and really prioritizing that. That's really special and will go a long way with with your guests and opening it up to, to even more. And so when we think about the evolution of the Courageous Cooking School itself, what can future students look forward to? The biggest thing for us is going to be that we'll be able to offer day classes at the new restaurant space in Grasse. And we are so excited about that because we know, again, we're, we're expensive. We have to be. It's, accessibility is super important to me, but not at the, at the detriment of paying thriving wages, right? So we're talking about a team of seven in-person people who have to be paid. And what, what I consider thriving is a minimum of 20 euros an hour. So that's our lowest paid employee in any role. And that is super important to me, whether it's uh, – personal for childcare or in the company. And that means that lower cost isn't possible. It's just not possible to charge less than what we charge. And it is $8,000 a week for the cooking school. I haven't mentioned how expensive it is. And renting the house is between 10 and 30,000, depending on the time of year. Again, I'm not going to make it more accessible to the detriment of staff and this of uh, me paying my staff less. It's just not happening. That's really important to me. But being able to get more people access to La Peach and have other ways to experience the property and to experience courageous cooking is super important to me. So doing these like one day in-person classes where we can go straight from the gross market back to our restaurant, cook a meal and do that in a slightly larger group in a one day kind of experience and experience that magic of courageous cooking. We also just launched an online school, which is we have a free tier where you can literally get like one or two classes a month free. So you can start tapping into that magic or you can sign up for more classes for $69 a month or $1,000 a year. Uh, so that's another way that we've created a full free tier where like you get access to our community and our instructors and are able to ask them questions without paying a dime. You don't even have to hand over your credit card information. So a lot of it's about for us is like re looking at what accessibility means and why that matters to us and like how to do it in a way that isn't to the detriment of our team has been kind of the biggest thing we're working on because we don't think that hospitality should be cheap. This notion, this belief that hospitality should be cheap is steeped in colonialism and problems and people going to Mexico for all-inclusives for nothing where people are literally paid, they're barely paid a wage, right? Like it is criminal what they get paid and like how the land is treated isn't very good. And we just think that hospitality should be expensive. And does that mean that everybody can afford it? No, but maybe the fact that it should it sh maybe it shouldn't be affordable because if it is affordable then what have you said about the value of the people who are providing that service so that's that's the big thing for us is like how can we create opportunities to access the importance of this method of like being able to cook for yourself being able to nourish your body in a way that's joyful instead of uh, a chore right that's what creative cooking really is about for us um, so that's the big things for us that we're looking forward towards right now is like, how do we get this magic into more hands, but also maintain the integrity of the property and maintain the integrity of paying people well and all of those layers? Absolutely. Well, and that's why I was so excited to have this conversation with you. And that's really a lot of the mission behind this podcast and what all it will become is because we want to highlight 
those places where you're really impacting the local community. And we that's how we like to travel. My fiance and I, that's why we intentionally choose to stay at properties such as yours. We want to take those classes, have those experiences, buy those local goods because it's putting money back into the local community. And there's the, then that two-way dialogue and give and take that happens there. So that's beautiful to see that you're just providing that through different touch points to so many different people. And as you've touched on, you're really expanding beyond just your current property. You've got your flower farm, your restaurant coming soon. So as one of the thought leaders and entrepreneurs in France's culinary scene, are there any other projects that you're working on? I mean, you have so many already, but is there anything else you'd like to touch on? <laughs> oh, so the, the biggest thing is the restaurant, which will also have a bar and a terrace and a cooking space upstairs. And we're also... Because of the experience of the television show, which was mostly positive, but not 100% positive, and that's a whole separate conversation for another time, we really fell in love with producing and producing content and telling stories that need to be told. I touched on this a little bit uh, at the beginning of the conversation, but this erasure of gay men from the food and hospitality industry due to AIDS, and then no one being willing to kind of stand up and talk for these people who are gone, they've just evaporated from the narrative. They've evaporated from the historical narrative. They've evaporated from the reality of like hospitality was essentially run by gay men for a very long time. And that shouldn't really come as a surprise if you know gay men, right? Like they tend to be very hospitable. They tend to be like this caretaker, the type of people who love to welcome people into their homes and host lavish parties. Like that's like, I swear that's just part of so many gay men's DNA. And so it's not a surprise that hospitality was like a big part of that, that the, your barmen were frequently gay, that your servers were frequently gay pre-epidemic, right? Pre-AIDS epidemic. And post that, they just vanished. And that's like, I'm getting emotional talking about it, but we're writing, working on a documentary that's like trying to track those people and bring their stories back out to life. And so much of it was just kind of swept under the rug. And it's no one's fault. It's definitely a sign of the times. The times have changed. But I really think that like, so as a out non-binary queer human who's neurodivergent and like oftentimes feels really invisible because I don't fit in the norm. I do spend a lot of time in the margins and at the edges that like making sure that these stories are brought to light, not to demonize anyone. I'm not trying to say that like people were wrong because that was of that time, but like that it's now time to bring their stories back. It's time to shine light and to show that these amazing people were such a crucial part of what is a very American thing, this type of hospitality, right? This is a, and it's not only an American thing, but this like new wave of hospitality is in huge part driven by American farm to table, American slow food, obviously not exclusively Italians and French and all sorts of cultures that we don't mention have a deep hospitality backing too. You know, South America has it, Mexico has it, so many different places in Africa have it too. Like, but the U.S., I guess, commoditized it, right, in a way, like, and brought it to the B, this like really important thriving industry that employs millions of people. And the fact that like, the original employees of that vanished, and no one's talking about them, even though they were shaping it, it just shatters me. And so it's one of the things that we're working on is bringing some of these stories kind of back to light. I love that. And you say you're not a historian, but here you are. <laughs> honoring those people and all that they've created. And, but to your point, you're bringing them to light in modern times, having that dialogue today so that we can impact the future generations. So I, I see a little historian and a little sentiment in you as well. <laughs> well, you know, I am, I am human, but it's really, that Chris, that's really Chris's project, right? Like I kind of came up with it and it's actually better that it's not mine because the interviews, I don't think that I don't think that like our, our staff, actually, the whole production team on the documentary is actually all prime. I shouldn't say all they are straight presenting. They're not all necessarily straight or non queer right they, there, but they they live in a life of straight presenting privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually super crucial because I, I've heard some of the interviews and I don't think it would be good for my soul to be listening to those until it's been distilled. It's almost better for these stories. Do we have people behind the scenes who are helping navigate the 
murky waters of history and like helping find the history and helping who are queer historians, but actually listening to the interviews, I think it's better that it's not me. It's not other queer folks. Like it's better for it to be like held by people who haven't experienced that trauma in their lives. Cause I think it would just, I think it's actually like the the stories are just hard. Yes. More eye opening because none of the stories surprise me. They just break my heart right? Like I'm not surprised by any of it. That's even sadder in some ways, right? But it just is devastating to listen to. So I think it's so much better that it's actually not my baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, we'll definitely have to touch base when that comes about because it's such an important story, like you said, and just a, a means of sharing that with a lot of us who haven't had that experience. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about that in the future and best of luck in the meantime. Hello, worldly travelers and loyal listeners. Are you too planning your upcoming travels and in search of independently owned and operated stays and experiences to visit along the way? Head on over to stayinggoodcompany.com or our social media channels at stayinggoodcompany and drop us a note with where you're going and when, and we'll be sure to set you up in good company for your trip. Just don't be surprised if we hide away in your suitcase and join you in your journeys. So now that we know what it's like to stay in good company at La Pichon, we've learned and grown in good company with McKenna Held, and thus we have a few final questions, what I'm calling a toast table topics. Turning back to Julia Child, do you have a favorite quote from her? Well, we named the Courageous Cooking School because she, in one of her shows, said, I think it's when she's flipping a potato tortilla, like the Spanish kind of tortilla, where she goes, have the courage of your convictions. You just have to have them. And you just like flips it and it goes everywhere. And she goes, well, it didn't work out. And I, I loved but that, that like have the courage of your convictions is like a thing that I'm a big believer in. It's like that, that willing, because courage is not bravery, right? Bravery is foolhardy. Courage is informed risk-taking. And that's kind of how I've lived my entire adult life, right? And I, I've always had that like sense of, I didn't always have that sense of courage. It's not always, I don't always have it anymore. Like I still hate networking. I am, you know, awkward and struggle with that. But that like notion has always, has been really important to me in adulthood since I, since I was about 16. Cause I had melanoma when I was 16 and it was very aggressive and really bad and spent the next kind of two years in and out of hospitals, getting blood tests, making sure everything was hunky dory. And so like that, it was like everything from there. It's like the fact that I'm alive is a miracle and a blessing. And that the only way to live is to be courageous because otherwise you're missing out on opportunities and I could die tomorrow. You could, we could all get hit by buses tomorrow. Right. So that that's a a key one for me. Wow. I had no idea all that went behind choosing that name. I mean, it's such a fun play on words, courageous cooking school, but I love that you just shared that backstory and thank you for that. Yeah. And so while you don't do recipes yourself, is there a dish of Julia Child's that you always can rely on? Oh my God. I hate to admit this. I do not ever cook from her cookbooks. Never. <laughs> I tried. I I just can't. Like it not is just not omelet? my style. No, I mean, I don't even cook. I don't even make omelets the way she does. Like if you watch the omelet show, it's so funny because she tries to make stuffed omelets, but like she ends up doing more topped omelets than stuffed because like it just doesn't quite work out, right? The one thing I did cook of hers that I loved is she had a really good garlic mashed potato recipe that has like 40 cloves of garlic in it. And it's killer. I probably never would have had the courage to put that much garlic in a potato dish if she hadn't done it first. Um, and now that she has done it, I put a lot more and I actually made that on the Thanksgiving that we bought the house. So we were actually, when we put the offer in, it was on Thanksgiving day. Cause you know, France is open. A normal day. <laughs> normal day. It's just a Thursday. So that I made that dish that day when we bought the house, like when we put in the offer and I, I, that is my go-to of hers. Other than that, like, it's just so classic and I don't make anything that's that classically French. <laughs> understandable but yes I definitely whenever I look at a recipe and see the amount of garlic I always up it a little bit maybe that's my intuition maybe that's me feeling courageous but the more garlic is never a bad thing (laughs) besides being great in the countryside of France what is another cultural cuisine that you would like to learn more about or a country you'd like to visit next up is Morocco 
I'm headed to Morocco in February and I've never been. I'm so excited. And my daughter is so excited. She's like, I get to ride a camel. I'm like, yeah. And she, she loves Moroccan food. That's really exciting. Japan is really exciting. I'm always open to learning more about Mexican food. I don't feel like there's enough knowledge of Mexican food like that in the world for me to absorb. I will absorb it all. I love it so much. And I'm also really enjoying learning about Puerto Rican food right now because I just got Diasporican and uh, by Alana. Uh, I can't remember her last name right now, but it's a great, it's a great cookbook. Just won a James Beard award. And I've been loving learning about that too, because it's not something I know a lot about. So fascinating that you can travel the world through food and different culinary experiences like that. Absolutely. And to not overstay our welcome, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking if our listeners haven't already done so during this episode, where can they go to book a vacation stay or courageous cooking school experience at La Peach? At www.lapeach.com, L-A-P-E-E-T-C-H.com. Where can they go to follow along your journey from their own kitchen homes? Can you share where to find your online cooking school, your TV show, blogs, socials, etc.? Absolutely. You can go to CourageousCookingSchool.com and that will get you the free access to our online school or the paid access. Uh, and of course, I have social media. You can follow me at McKenna Held or you can follow the LaPeach account at LaPeachFR. Perfect. Well, merci beaucoup for joining us, McKenna, and for giving us a taste of provincial living and cooking to inspire us all in our own kitchens. Well, thank you for having me. It was an utter joy. Thank you for listening along. I hope you found yourself to be in good company. I know I did. Be sure to rate and review, invite your friends along, and find out more ways to stay in good company in the show notes below. Until next time, remember to slow down and to savor the company you're in. Cheers, my friends. <laughs>